Good morning to all of our campuses. We're so glad that you are here to worship with us wherever you are at. And a happy Mother's Day to all the mothers out there. We are so grateful for you. And we hope today that you feel honored and appreciated and loved by those around you. We also acknowledge that this can be a day with varying emotions. For some, maybe it brings feelings of pain or grief. And so just know that you are in our hearts and prayers today, wherever you are at. So Dr. Henry Henry Cloud tells a story of a marriage conference that he was a part of. So he's the keynote speaker and he's up front and everyone is sitting in pairs, these couples. And so he gives them something to do. He says, I want you for a moment to just think about all the things you love about your spouse. You know, just think of all the great things that they do and think of their personality. Think of what attracted you to them in the first place. And so he gave them a a time of silence to just kind of be filled with these great feelings of love and adoration. You know, people were kind of looking at each other with lovey-dovey eyes, and there were a lot of smiles in the room. And then he said, now this is what I want you to do. He said, I want you to turn to your spouse and repeat after me. And this is what he said. He said, honey, I am a sinner. I will fail you and I will hurt you. And you can imagine how kind of the mood in the room shifted a bit, and it went from these kind of loving looks to kind of confused looks, maybe shocked looks. Everything changed in that moment. But you know, the truth is, all of the people you love the most are imperfect, right? I hate to break it to you. Every person you know but also you yourself are imperfect. And that's your spouses, it's your family, it's your friends, it's your coworkers. And so every person is guaranteed at times to fail you and to even hurt you in many different ways and vice versa. You know, it really brings up a verse from Ecclesiastes chapter seven, which says, indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. And some of you are like, thank you, that describes our car trip to church this morning, right? It just explains it in a very concise way. All of us are broken, all of us, are sinful. And so every one of us brings our flaws and our brokenness to all of our relationships, whether it's our marriages or our parenting or our friendships. And that means conflict is guaranteed to happen. As much as we wish that wasn't true, as much as we wish there was some magic bullet that could get us out of it, conflict is guaranteed to happen in our relationships. And unfortunately, when conflicts and hurts arise, they often don't bring out the best in us, do they? You know, it's often times like these when it's easy for our words and our actions to start to escalate and to even get out of control. We start to dig in for an epic battle and we gather any ammo that we can think of to use in the conflict. And too often what we do is we fall back into the bad habits that are picked up and established early in our life. 
You know, because often one of the biggest influences in how we handle relationships and how we handle conflict is what we saw take place in our family of origin. You know, like, have you ever thought in the moment when you're in a fight with your spouse or with a friend or with your child, have you ever stopped to think like, this is exactly what I promised I would never do when I grew up? You know, like you remember back as, as a kid, maybe you witnessed your parents handling conflict in a certain way and you're like, that will never be me. But then in the moment, you're like, that is exactly me. You know, often, even if we're 30, 40, 50, 60 plus years old, when we enter into conflict, we become 12 years old again. So we're in the final week of a sermon series called Emotionally Healthy Relationships. And it's based on a great course and book that was written by Pete and Jerry Scazzaro. And really the heart of this series is to help every one of us grow in our ability to love others well. Because it's something that Jesus modeled for us, but it's also an expectation that he has for all of his followers. And so Matthew, who was one of Jesus's closest friends and followers, he describes this time when religious leaders came to Jesus with a big question and they said, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus is saying, instead of focusing on the 613 different commandments that are listed in the Old Testament, there was a law or a commandment for every day of the week and also for every part of the body. And it added up to 613. And, you know, the Pharisees thinks we're going to trap Jesus. Like, how is he going to pick out of these hundreds and hundreds of different laws and commandments. And Jesus is like, simple, do two things, love God and love people. And if you do those two things, you're going to take care of all of the expectations that God has for you. And so just as important as deepening in our love for God is deepening in our love for other people. And so in this series, we've been talking each week about some practical steps that we can take to make our relationships healthier. We've talked about how we need to clarify our expectations because so often they go unspoken and it can be such a huge source of pain in our relationships. We talked about how we need to be more self-aware, how we're kind of like an iceberg where 90% of what we're about is below the surface and not visible. And so it takes some hard work. We talked about listening incarnationally, just like Jesus did. We talked about living our true self towards others. And today, as we close out this series, I want to talk about fighting cleanly. Now, you might be thinking that is a really odd topic for Mother's Day. And at first glance, that's definitely true. But then I started thinking about how at least when I was growing up, I heard my mother say many times, stop fighting with your brother or your sister. And so, you know, if we start to practice this in our lives, maybe actually it could be a great gift for our mothers. Like, finally, we get to do what she asked us to do. 
So again, today, we're going to talk about how to fight cleanly when it comes to conflict. Again, conflict is unavoidable in our relationships because two flawed and broken people are coming together. And unfortunately, it's not a double negative. We don't cancel each other out. In fact, it's more multiplication that when that brokenness and that sin comes together, it magnifies it. There's more possibility for brokenness and for conflict. But here's the thing, how we choose to handle that conflict and to handle the disagreements that will come up really is important to our emotional and relational health. Now, I think there are a variety of ways that we might tend to try to deal with the conflict in our relationships. One option is sometimes we choose avoidance. We just think, I'm going to pretend it's not there, and maybe it'll go away. You know, this is a piece that feels like it's there, but it's not stable and it's not lasting. Now, sometimes we choose avoidance out of fear. We just don't want to see what's going to happen next. Other times it's because we're people pleasers. We want to keep everyone happy. And so we don't want to go into a tough area or topic But you know, in the long run, when we put off and we don't deal with conflict and division and disagreement, well, it means we will never experience lasting peace. It's what the prophet Jeremiah talked about in the Old Testament. He says, they have healed the brokenness of my people superficially, saying, peace, peace, but there is no peace. I mean, Jeremiah is rightly observing that relational peace will never come from just pretending that everything is okay. It's never going to come from refusing to deal with the issue at hand. Now, Jesus modeled this. Jesus was willing to take on conflict. He had conflict throughout his ministry with his own disciples, with religious leaders, even with the crowds of people that followed him around. And Jesus dealt with conflict head on. He was direct and he was firm, but he focused on what was most important and that was preserving the relationship. And so sometimes we choose avoidance. Now there's other times that we choose to fight dirty. And this is when we go into survival mode and we decide we need to win at any cost, no matter what it takes. And suddenly the weapons that we choose to use are way more creative, but way more destructive. And in that moment, you're singularly focused on one thing, whatever it takes to be victorious. So there's a relationship expert whose name is Dr. John Gottman, who is studied relationships and marriages specifically for many years. And he's especially studied interactions between people and body language between people. And he said to be able to predict the likelihood of a divorce in any couple's relationship within 95% accuracy within just minutes. Again, because of how they interact and how they choose to handle themselves around each other. And what he looks for is what he has coined the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Four things that are incredibly destructive to any relationship, but also I think sum up some of the most harmful ways that we choose to fight dirty 
in our relationships. So the first thing is criticism. This is when complaints that we have become personal. It ceases to be about actions and instead becomes about the person themselves. Criticism attacks someone's personality and someone's very being instead of just their behavior. So instead of saying something like, you know, I really wish you wouldn't spend so much money it's something more like you're so irresponsible. You're like a five-year-old with a credit card, right? It becomes much more personal. Number two then is defensiveness. And this is when each person feels right and they deny any responsibility at all for the conflict, which naturally escalates the conflict. And so we default to saying things like, you know, it's really not my fault at all. It's all your fault. Or I only did this because you always do this. Well, then defensiveness often leads to the third and most harmful thing. This is one that can be just utterly destructive to any relationship, and that is contempt. Contempt is when there is an intention to try to hurt and insult and even psychologically abuse the other person. The most common forms of this are name-calling, hostile humor, sarcastic comments, and even mocking the other person. But really, in the end, what the implication of, of this is, is communicating to the other person, I can't believe that I'm even in this relationship with you at all. Again, contempt can be so, so harmful. And then number four, stonewalling. And this is when one or both of the people just emotionally withdraw. And they refuse to engage with the other person at all. And all that's left is an icy distance, a smug judgmentalness. And when this happens, there's really no way forward to resolve the conflict. Now, this makes me think of a story I heard one time about a couple who were married, and they had this epic fight, and they both decided to use the silent treatment on each other. And it was kind of a, you know, this competition to see who was going to go the longest. So they went like a week, and they didn't even talk to each other. But the husband realized that there was something important coming up. He needed to catch a flight to an essentially important business meeting in Chicago. And to get on this flight, he was going to have to get up at 5 a.m. to make sure that he made the flight. And the problem was he notoriously slept through his alarm. So he got out a piece of paper because, again, he didn't want to break silence. And he wrote a note to his wife and he said, could you please help me and wake me up at 5 a.m. tomorrow morning? And she responded back on the piece of paper, okay. So he figured everything's good. So he went to bed. He woke up in the morning and he realized that his wife was already up and at it. He looked at his clock and it was way past 9 a.m. And he was furious. And so he got out of bed. He was going to go and confront her. But then he found a note that said, it's 5 a.m. Wake up. <laughs> Fighting dirty doesn't work. And so I think we need to prepare before the conflict happens. We need to actually have a plan that we're willing to put into place. We need to know the ground rules so we're ready. 
Because not having a plan almost guarantees a longer and more painful and more disruptive conflict than needs to be. When I do pre-marriage counseling, one of the exercises I give to couples is I tell them, go and write out your rules to a fair fight. But don't do it when you're mad at each other. Like, do it when you're super happy and you're in a good spot and you can go out to a coffee shop and you can have a conversation. But having those rules in place means that when the conflict arises, that you're ready to deal with it. And so instead of avoidance and instead of fighting dirty, I think we need to learn how to have a good, clean fight. Now, it might sound weird, but it's so, so important. Pete Scazzaro says, a clean fight is a negotiation between two people for the sake of their relationship. It's actually pretty similar to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 12. He says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. I mean, essentially, isn't that a dirty fight when we try to repay evil for evil? We try to escalate the situation. He says, be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now you might remember that is the verse that we began this series with because I love how realistic Paul is. He doesn't gloss over the idea that relationships are hard and that conflict is inevitable, that there are times when it's going to be really hard to live at peace with people in our lives. And for whatever reason, sometimes the other person might continue to choose to be in conflict. Maybe we'll go above and beyond and they will decide to dig in. And so when it comes to those cases, we just have to be at peace with ourselves and peace with God. But Paul is saying, do everything that you can do. Take every step that you can take to try to work through the conflict. But you know, in most cases, reconciliation is possible but we need to learn to fight cleanly. So here are some important biblical principles for resolving the conflicts that we face in our relationships. Number one, we need to be willing to take initiative. That means we have to be the one who's willing to go first. The first step is to not ignore the conflict or avoid it or hide it or bury it. But instead, it's to face it head on. But you know, since most all of us really don't enjoy conflict too much, this is not our natural inclination. Often we just sit back and wait. We wait and we hope that it just kind of goes away. But as we talked about before, that never happens. You know, sometimes we figure the other person is more at fault, so they're more responsible, and we just wait for them to come to us. Or in the process, we play the martyr, and actually the conflict and the disagreement escalates and magnifies. You know, sometimes we say the phrase, time heals, but that's almost never true. We need to be the one who takes the initiative 
who goes first. And it's exactly what Jesus talks about in the book of Matthew chapter five. He says, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. Now, this is amazing because what Jesus is essentially saying is that reconciliation with others takes priority over worship. Like if you think you can come to church and sing the songs and praise God and dig into the word, but still hold a grudge or resentment against somebody else, he's saying, think again. God wants you first to get rid of all of that stuff. God is saying, I can wait. Your worship can wait because your relationships are that important to God. And so I think what that actually means is if we took Jesus's words to heart, there are many of us that actually shouldn't be sitting here right now. There are many of us that maybe should get up and go across the worship center and find the person that we have some friction with. Or maybe we need to go and set up a coffee date with someone to reconcile this coming week. God is saying your relationships are so important. Your worship can wait. So take initiative and be the first to go. Number two, then be the first to take responsibility. Make sure you start with you. Even if the other person is 99.9% at fault, take responsibility for your 0.1%. Now, of course, this takes a ton of humility, but it's so essential to making sure that the conflict is resolved because there's power and there's healing when we're willing to confess our part in the conflict. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 7. He says, why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? First, get rid of the log in your own eye. Then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. When we're willing to humble ourselves in love, Defenses come down and doors open up. See, this is about putting away all your ammo and making it clear to the other person your intention is not to destroy or to wound them. And really what this does is it shows the other person you're serious about resolving the conflict. So be the first one to take responsibility. Then number three, Listen carefully to their perspective. Notice it doesn't say speak yet. It says listen first. Conflicts become worse and worse and worse because so little listening actually takes place. Now you've heard this verse quoted so many times, but I think it is so, so essential. It's from James 119. Jesus's little brother says, be quick to listen slow to speak, and slow to get angry. How many of us would say we fall short of that in our relationships, in our families, even at work? 
I think for many of us, it's the exact opposite. You know, we're, we're quick to speak. We're pretty slow to listen, but we're really, really quick to get angry. But church, I'm convinced that if more people in our world actually put those words into practice, so many of our conflicts and our divisions would be healed and they'd be resolved. I mean, imagine if we put James 119 into practice in the next election cycle. I mean, it would be revolutionary, right? But what would it look like for you to practice James 119 in your marriage or with your children or at school or at work? Now, I love this bit of wisdom about conflicts I once heard. It says, argue like you're right, but listen like you're wrong. Think about putting that into practice. Are you listening openly and clearly enough to hear the other person's perspective? Or are you just formulating your argument and what you're going to say in response? So, of course, argue like you're right, but listen like you could be wrong. Remember, we talked about this a couple weeks ago when we covered listening incarnationally. Paul says in Philippians 2, 4, and 5, don't look out for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Take an interest in someone else's point of view. Be open to their perspective. You see, when you find yourself in a conflict with someone, make sure you prioritize listening and listen with a humble posture that says, you know, I very well could be wrong. I could very well be at fault. You know, there's another wise saying that I'm sure you've heard before that says, seek first to understand and then to be understood. Well, then number four finally says, speak the truth in love. Paul says, but don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. After listening incarnationally, listening openly and completely, then it's finally time to speak. But imagine if we would hold ourselves to this standard let everything that you say be good and helpful and encouraging. Choose your words so very carefully and constructively. You know, remember the goal in conflict resolution is to attack the, the problem, not the person. But isn't that the exact opposite that we see on social media? It's the exact opposite that we're going to see in almost every political ad. And it's probably the exact opposite, if we're honest, of what we often do in a heated argument. We need to attack the problem, not attack the person. So choose your words carefully. Communicate your own feelings. But fall, or stop short of blaming 
or attacking the other person. It's so much more effective to use I statements about how you feel. You know, in this moment, I'm feeling this way. Instead of using a lot of you statements coupled with a lot of extreme language, like you always or you never. That's just simply not true, right? But it's often what we say in the moment. Strive for clarity and ultimately strive for closure and resolution, which leads to number five. Remember, the ultimate goal is reconciliation. Reconciliation is the healing and the reestablishing of the relationship. The goal is not to agree on every issue. We might still disagree on a lot of things. The goal is not to exact punishment and pain and retribution towards the other person. You see, when you focus on preserving the relationship, then first and foremost, you realize there are many things that just aren't worth arguing and fighting about. And you realize that there needs to be a lot of give and take for a healthy relationship. If both people can agree on this goal, then the solutions and the forgiveness and the grace that's required come so much easier. And so what I want you to remember is it's always better to resolve the conflict than to dissolve the relationship. It's always better to resolve the conflict than to dissolve the relationship. So don't fight to win the argument. Fight to win the relationship. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... The new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Followers of Jesus have a job. Followers of Jesus have a ministry. It's a ministry of reconciliation in your marriage, with your children, with your friends, at school, at work. I mean, the reality is our world is so full of bitter conflict and division and disagreements. And it can be so, so discouraging. But what if we, as Christ followers, took our ministry, took our job seriously? What if we would go from this place today and be agents of reconciliation? And instead of just stooping to the level that we see in society, we would actually be different. If we would seek to build bridges, if we would seek to understand other perspectives, and if we would seek to bring peace to our families and our neighborhoods, in our community. You know, because when people build bridges and when people are committed to reconciliation, well, we're being a lot like Jesus, right? Because Jesus came to reconcile us to God. I mean, the Bible is so clear because of sin, we are at conflict with God. But here's the amazing thing, church. Just like we talked about in our five steps to conflict resolution, God took the initiative. 
God choose to take the first step. And he sent Jesus to come and die and to rise again. I mean, the Bible says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I mean, it's an amazing thing. He didn't wait for us to grovel. He didn't wait for us to try to earn it. He didn't wait for us to do enough penance. He took the first step and he made the first move. And he offers us the grace that we need to come back into a right relationship, a reconciled relationship with God. Now, once we've experienced that unbelievable love and grace, well, we're called to pass it on. We're called to be that kind of person who brings reconciliation to the world. So again, church, imagine if we would all put this into practice because it's so countercultural, but it's also contagious, I think. It makes an impact on the people around us. It rubs off on others. So what if we would go and build more emotionally healthy relationships? What if we would do the hard work to fight cleanly and resolve our conflicts? What if we would go and bring reconciliation into every relationship this week? Let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks that you care about every single detail of our lives. You care about every relationship that's represented in this place. You care about every interaction that we have with others. And God, you remind us that in every person we meet, every relationship we have, every interaction we have, we're actually seeing a picture of you because we're created in your image. And because of that, we need to extend grace and dignity towards all people. And so God, help make us great at relationships. God, help us to get over our selfishness. Help us to get past all of the baggage that we carry with us from childhood. Help us to get past our pride issues and instead learn to love others like you've shown us. So God, help us to be agents of reconciliation. Help us to go and do our job well, to be peacemakers, to be love bringers, to be filled with your spirit so that we can represent you well. And so God, help create more healthy relationships in and through us so that more people can be drawn to you and so that more people will spend eternity in your kingdom. And so God, we trust this to your care in the powerful name of Jesus. And let's all say together, amen.